BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. One of my most favorite essays, and, and I'm not alone in this, it's, it's very popular, was published in the Philosophical Review and was written by Thomas Nagel in 1974. It's called, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Nagel observes that an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something that it is like to be that organism, something it is like for the organism. That means that I can simulate the sensory experiences of a bat. I can learn to echolocate. I can hang from a tree upside down. I can spend my days sleeping and my nights searching for insects. But I will never know what it's like for a bat to be a bat. And is there something that it is like for a bat to be a bat? And if there is, then we would argue that there is some kind of consciousness, some sentience that the bat has. That's the argument that Jackie Higgins makes for the very premise of her book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. In it, she takes us into a deep dive into the sensory experiences of many different animals, from fish to owls to moles to cheetahs. And by considering what the subjective experience might be of another organism, an organism whose sensory receptors are very different from ours, whose nervous system might be completely different, like the distributed nervous system of a cephalopod, also helps us understand what it's like to be human. After talking to Annie Murphy-Paul about our extended mind, about how our environment and various other factors influence how our minds work, Let's now take a deep dive into the minds of animals and what that might tell us about our own. Jackie Higgins, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me, Andre. Very much. Great to be on. One of my favorite topics is putting myself into the minds of another animal that has a completely different sensory or just subjective experience. Sounds like that's interesting to you, too. It really is. And if it's guided by science, I mean, it's always an imaginative leap, but it's an irresistible leap to not go for it. 
And so I think um, if it's guided by science, then it's, you know, it's a really insightful as well. It can be illuminating. Yeah. One of the things that people forget is how much of our nervous system is a product of a very long evolutionary history. And so there are a lot of things that we think of as uniquely mine, if not uniquely human, that we actually share with other animals. Completely. I mean, I look, I'm, I'm trained as a zoologist. Um, so I studied zoology at Oxford uh, quite a few decades ago. Then I made wildlife films and I made science documentaries. You know, I made National Geographic Explorers and, and uh, specials and PBS Novas and Horizons. But I've always, it's the, the, the subject, zoology has always been my kind of key interest. And I hold it up. I think of it as a mirror that I can hold up to better understand myself. It's, I'm totally narcissistic, <laughs> but I mean, it gives us a kind of clarity and it gives us a distance and particularly sentient. This book is about the senses and because the senses circumscribe our everyday experience, I mean, our experience is multi-sensory, our perception is multi-sensory. It's difficult. I mean, it's impossible, frankly, to kind of understand what each one is doing for us. And we don't appreciate them. There's that great quote by Leonardo da Vinci at the beginning of the book saying, we look without seeing, we hear without listening, we touch without feeling. And we do. It's all mundane and boring. It's getting up on Monday morning and getting into the office. But the miracle of every split second of that journey in the kind of sensory um, apprehension of the world is fabulous. And animals enabled me to get some distance on that. Yeah, you know, I think we often in this world, especially in a, when we're a lot of us are still working from home or in a pandemic, we're kind of we're so into our own heads, inside of our own heads. And recently on, on the show, we had um, Annie Murphy-Paul on, who wrote a book called The Extended Mind, which is about how just the circumstances of our environment can shape how our brains work. You know, whether like, like when you're walk, taking a walk in nature, you literally think differently <laughs> and, you know, your, your, your brain. So it's not just this like, you know, extended mind from the perspective of how, how technology extends it, but how our environment extends it. And that's why I thought, you know, t then talking to you next about what, you know, the subjective experience of, of the sensory world just really made a, a really wonderful pairing of episodes. So let's start with, um, it's hard to know what a animal is experiencing, <laughs> just like it's hard to know what another human being is experiencing. We just project our own experience onto them. So tell me a little bit about sort of the approach that um, the scientists that you interviewed or you yourself take when thinking about this anthropomorphization. That's such a long syllable word. <laughs> You yeah, know, but you know what I mean, right? So when we project our own human humanness onto another animals, how do we navigate that? How do we stay true to objectivity, but without losing all of the really interesting stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, one way that scientists can understand how an animal, what an animal is sensing is simply by looking at the, the hardware. So looking at the sensors that that animal has. So the first chapter is on the mantis shrimp. The puncher. The peacock mantis shrimp, which is this kind of plucky crustacean with an evil right hook. Yeah. For the book, more interestingly, um, spectacular eyes and spectacular sensors within those eyes. More color sensors than are in your or my eye. But there's this wonderful lesson because we have three cones in our eye. And from that, we're able to see rainbows. The crustacean has um, many, many more than that. And they're dodecachromates. So they have, they have 12. 
So for a while, scientists assumed that this creature had the most extraordinary technicolor vision. I mean, it was it was talked about as a thermonuclear bomb explosion of, of color. But when they actually started studying what these creatures could see, and they started training brilliantly, they started training these shrimps to, um, or these crustacea, I should say, they're not quite shrimps. And they had to, one very patient experimenter, Hannah Thurn, Thurn basically dissected the colors of the rainbow. And orange shade by burnt sienna, by crimson, taught um, this shrimp that it would only be rewarded if it responded to a certain color. And what she found was these they didn't have what we were assuming they would have. And although they have all these different sensors, the way in which those sensors then interlock and work together, and the perception that this creature has is different to what we were expecting. What's the purpose then? Why would natural selection favor this, you know, 12 set of different cones or photoreceptors? They certainly use color. They're very colorful creatures. There's an easy answer in in that some of those sensors can sense um, aspects of light that we can't sense, like polarized light. And also they're the only creature on the planet that we know of that can see circularly polarized light. So they've got this private channel of communication that no other creature can see, which is wonderful. And then in terms of the many color sensors, well, maybe because of the way that the sensors were speaking to one another, it needed more color sensors. Um, The palette perhaps had to be greater at the sensory level because the perceptual level, it was not uh, combining in a way that was exponential in the way that it is with us, perhaps. Who knows? (laughs) So you you have a a, a wide variety, diversity of of, uh, species that you talk about in the book, and they seem to be very much curated. They seem very specific. So I wonder if you could just walk us through your decision making. How did you pick these particular species and why? Oh, it was probably the toughest job that I faced was trying to whittle down the exceptional sensory biodiversity on the planet. I had so many species to choose from. And so my rule became, because the ultimate subject of the book is you and me, it's us. Each creature had to say something pertinent about what it means to be human. So there was that, and there had to be some interesting research, sensory research going on, not necessarily in that specific um, species. For example, I couldn't resist choosing the Goliath catfish because catfish um, taste the the world through their skin. So they're essentially swimming tongues, but the Goliath <laughs> catfish is is immense. So the idea of this kind of, you know, gargantuan swimming tongue swimming through the Amazon <laughs> is too good to resist. And and again, with the barn owl, a lot of, and I, I chose the great gray owl because we often think of owls and we think that they've got um, extraordinary eyesight, which they do, but they also use their ears. And the perfect example of that was with the great gray owl. This bird with its kind of one and a half meter wingspan, this vast, beautiful, handsome raptor, does these spectacular snow dives um, where from 30 meters away, it will have heard a little mouse underneath a mound of snow and with its ears. And it uses its ears to basically home in, specifically target practice, to swoop in without ever seeing or smelling or sensing it through heat or touch or anything, just through sound, it'll swoop and poor mouse. 
<laughs> I think one of the scientists that you spoke to talked about hearing as the one sense that almost every creature on Earth seems to have some analog of. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yes. So Seth Horowitz, who wrote a book called The Universal Sense, and it's this idea that there are, because there are molecules, I mean, sound essentially is a commotion in molecules. It's the movement of, so as I speak to you, I mean, God knows what it's doing through the microphones. That's a step too far from me. But as I speak to you, vibrations are causing, physical vibrations are kicking the air into motion. And that uh, movement of air molecules becomes, is, is how we then sense and then hear sound. So there's nowhere on planet Earth where there aren't molecules. So it's everywhere. Sound is everywhere. And, you know, different animals might sense these vibrations in different ways. I mean, touch is also is a mechanical, um, you know, there are spiders' webs. Spiders use their webs and the vibrations of the webs they can feel. That's another way in which sound perhaps travels, but the spider's not hearing it. Or snakes, their belly is on the ground and they might hear footsteps from a long way off. Anyway, sound is everywhere, unlike light and therefore sight, unlike uh, smell generally is uh, in the air. Taste is much more predominantly used underwater. So sound is, is the universal sense. You know, I had a conversation with the director of the arts and health program at, at, the, at the WHO. His name is Christopher Bailey, and uh, he has glaucoma. So he's slowly losing his eyesight. And he made a really interesting, insightful comment where he said that he now that he's learned to rely on his hearing much more, and now he's sort of also, you know, uses taps and clicks to sort of create a sense of his environment. He talks about how light bounces off objects, but sound passes through them. So it kind of helps him get the essence of things. Which how interesting. Really yes. interesting. Really interesting. And, and the echolocation ability, which is essentially he's behaving like a bat. Um, he's using um, the bounce back of sounds to interpret his environment. And it's something that we think of with animals and we think of when people are losing their sight. But what was interesting when I did the research, we're all using this all the time. I mean, you know, when you're watching a movie and the stereo sound isn't quite right, you know, instantly when things are wrong. And, you know, the scientists were telling me, you know, we're walking down with, I'm walking down a corridor chatting to someone about sound and echolocation, and we're chatting, we're chatting, and we're thoroughly engaged in one another. And he said, you realize without looking up that the wall's coming up and we've got to turn left. And it's true. Our footsteps create this sound, and we are, we are subliminally um, interpreting this. But it was really interesting. There's a chap in the book who, who um, was slowly losing his sight, and he taught, he wrote, it was, a, it was a book and he wrote called Notes on Blindness. And he wrote beautifully about uh, how sound enlivened his world. He talked of how thunder put a roof over his head where before there'd been nothing. So I think sound is really important, but it is important for all of us, just that we're not aware that we're using this information. Yeah, you know, one of the things that 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 he talked about doing is being able to tell whether a cup is full when he's pouring a liquid into it on the basis of how it sounds. And I I was traveling with my 3-year-old daughter a couple of weeks ago and I had to fill up a water bottle, you know, in one of those stations at the airport and sometimes it's hard to see and I did the same thing and I was like, "Wow, yeah, this is really easy if you just pay a little bit more attention." So I wondered if there were any 
senses that you learned about from these animals that changed how you pay attention to your own sensory experiences and what that might be? Every single sense. <laughs> and, and it's, sorry, it's a boring question, but every single sense becomes infinitely interesting in the detail. I mean, almost, I, you know, hypochondriac. When I, was, when, <laughs> when I was learning about balance and I was learning about often with these subliminal secret senses, the senses that we're not always aware of, we only notice them when they go wrong. And I was speaking to various scientists and people who had balance problems. And I suddenly was hyper aware of my balance, almost to the point that when I was lying my head on the pillow, I was like, oh my God, I'm not quite straight. It's not. So each sense that I kind of dive deep on, I really got immersed in that sense. Touch was another one that really, I've got goosebumps just thinking about it. Our skin has been called science's last sensory frontier. We are still discovering. I mean, we can talk about deep space. We can talk about the ocean, but we can talk about our skin. And we're still discovering these sensors within our skin. I mean, the chap who won the Nobel Prize for um, Physiology and Medicine was is studying our skin and how we feel pain or how we register the spiciness of chili. Francis McGlone, who was another scientist in my book, is studying a sensor in our skin that basically they figured out only fires when the object touching your skin is at body temperature, when it's a light pressure. And he gave me the, the figure in Newton's, I don't recall. And it's at between three and five centimeters a second. So what's that? It's a stroke. It's a caress. And that's when that sensor fires. Oh, that's so interesting that we literally have sensors for each other's caresses. <laughs> yes. And what's extraordinary is we've, we've really nailed, I mean, science really understands how our fingers, how the star-nosed mole feels its way through the burrow, how our fingers feels the roughness or the smoothness of a walnut or the smoothness of a, of a ball bearing. So we've, we understand how the world feels through our fingertips. Science has a good idea about that. But when it comes to being touched, then the senses, we're only just kind of beginning to understand what this means. And one of the scientists, again, Francis McGlone in my book talks, he thinks as we get to understand this sense, he worries that, that um, this, this, this uh, isolation that we've all been through during COVID is going to have untold repercussions because he doesn't think of touch as a um, sentimental indulgence. He calls it a biological necessity for our species for our mental health, for all sorts of things. Yeah, if you talk to people who um, work, for example, in nursing homes, that the importance of touching uh, the elderly, because they often, one of the things that happens as you get older is that you are touched less often by others, and how, you know, touch can have a, a you know, profound influence on a person's health and well-being. That, that really resonates true to me, that, that you know, that, yeah, if, if, we, if we take that away, that part of it is, is, is really missing. There was a wonderful thing I learned about touch, which I didn't know, which is it's the first sense to come online when we're in the womb, and it's the last sense to ebb and die when we die. Oh, interesting. So holding someone's hand. Wow. One of the things that I couldn't help thinking about as I was reading your book is, is to, to, to how much both we know and still don't know about all of these different senses. But learning about them, you know, makes me wonder 
as we hurdle into the metaverse or whatever that might mean in terms of artificial stimulation of our senses, you know, how do you think about that? What do you think in terms of learning about all these different senses, including the ones that we are barely, if not uh, completely unaware of, does that just spell doom for, you know, people who are trying to create a a metaverse and, and all the sensations that go with it? Or is it just our brains are so capable of adapting to any environment that, you know, you put us in a virtual one and, and we'll develop new senses there or, you know, forget our old ones? Well, our brain is incredibly neuroplastic, as, as, as um, a few of the stories in the book show, that, that give them um, height in one sense and you'll really make use of it. But, you know, millions of years of evolution have gone into making us who we are today and we rely on smell. How's that going to work? And we rely on smell in ways that we haven't quite computed either. Touch, again, like I said. I mean, back to the smell, there's, um, I, I do two chapters on smell, one on the kind of obvious, you know, sniffing out the bouquet <laughs> of a good piece of chocolate. And then the other side, which is the kind of subconscious smells that we, that we, we make judgments about people, you know, not necessarily knowing, um, you know, about partners in love. Um, perhaps at the smell of my family, of my newborn baby. And so I don't know how that's going to work. So yes, we can adapt, but we will be closing off millions of years of evolution of, of a kind of sensorial engagement with people and with the world, which is, I think is troubling to say the least. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Speaking of, of people and the humanity of it all, I noticed that a lot of times you referred back to the writings of Oliver Sacks, who is also a big influence on my life. And I just spent the last year immersed in his writings because I'm I wrote and and I hosted the forthcoming Audible original podcast based on the world of Oliver Sacks. And I wondered what continued to draw you to incorporate, you know, his writings. Cause I, I don't necessarily consider him you know, particularly having written 
extensively about the census, although he has, of course, he has several books about it, the Island of the Colorblind, Seeing Voices, etc. But, you know, what what drew you to sort of continue to, to refer back to, to him? Like you, I have loved his writings from a long, long, long time. I'm sad I never met him. And the way that he describes humanity and our fragility and the diversity of our experience with such compassion has always fascinated and um, enthralled me. And actually, I quote him right at the beginning because the book had just been commissioned by Picador over in Britain to begin with. And I was, I was reading his last op-ed that he'd written for the New York Times in which he talks about the privilege that it's been being a sentient creature, a thinking animal on this planet. I mean, I had that as I, I planted those words above my computer. They became my worry beads because that's what I was trying to do with this book. We are thinking animals. We are sentient creatures. It is a privilege. I mean, the book is a joyful exploration of what it means to be human. And so those worry beads kind of kept me true to something. And like I said, I wish I could have met him. I loved his writings. I loved watching him in documentaries. Jonathan Cole, who I interviewed and is in the last chapter alongside Ian Waterman, both these gentlemen had met, had met um, Oliver. Um, Jonathan was his student and then his colleague. Um, so I heard about him secondhand. He was like a kind of figure somewhere. <laughs> um, I love to think he may have read the book and he may even Oh, he would have loved it. I'm sure he would have loved it. <laughs> it makes me very happy. We did an episode uh, about Ian Waterman uh, and interviewed Jonathan Cole. And, and for our listeners who don't know, so Ian uh, was a butcher and uh, he had an injury in, on his hand, I believe. Uh, and it's, there it seems to be that there's some kind of bacterium that went in and destroyed selectively the cell bodies of cells in which he gets his somatosensation from, from his body. So he essentially walks around with no proprioception, no sense of where his limbs are or, or, or what they're doing, and, uh, except uh, he, can, he can feel temperature. Because those those cell bodies are somewhere else, and I just I, or they're smaller, you know. Anyway, it was just back really to the interesting. sense of the skin, back to the sense yeah, of the exactly. skin. Exactly, you know, there is a whole clutch, a team that that is inside our skin, figuring out, you know, extracting certain pieces of information from the world that enables us to build a perception of that world. But Ian Ian was an is an amazing man, and you read his story and you feel sorry and shocked. He is such an inspiration. He's an endless optimist. When I was feeling crap in the morning, you know, he'd always, I mean, he's, he, he's just an absolute hero, frankly. Just to add to your, your story, when it first struck him and, you know, he kind of came after the virus had done its terrible business of decimating all these connections be between his brain and his body. It, when he closed his eyes, he could not feel his body. He, he used the word disembodied. It's not that he couldn't move. He said his arms would be going off and doing something that he was completely unaware of. It's the fact that he'd lost control. So he had to reteach himself using his eyes rather than his sense of body or proprioception to sit up again, to reach for that cup of coffee. I mean, every single movement that we use, even the way I'm gesticulating, he had to kind of teach himself gestures to appear more naturalistic when he was speaking. I mean, it's yeah, it, I mean, he he really is an Olympic athlete uh, in terms of being able to to do that. And, and uh, you know, we we interviewed Bill T. Jones, who's an amazing 
dancer and and choreographer and just a giant in American dance, if not world dance. And he just marveled at what Ian was able to accomplish. Yeah. He studied the way we move like no one else has had to before. Exactly. So there was one other sense that um, we haven't talked about yet that I wanted to touch upon, which I think, too, is people have either a, a gross misunderstanding of or a complete unawareness of, and that is our sense of time. So tell us about the orb weaver and why you chose that particular species to investigate how we think about time. So I could have chosen any species really to talk about time because this is something that all creatures are able to do. But I chose the orb weaver because of this fascinating research that's happening down in Tennessee and how they have body clocks that are completely different to everything else we thought were new or understood about body clocks. So essentially, in our eye, there is this amazing scientist called Russell Foster who proposed this notion a few decades ago. And when he proposed this notion, he was absolutely talked down, um, dismissed. People would walk out of kind of conferences um, because they thought it was nonsense. He proposed that in our eye, there is another light sensor. So not our cones enable us to give us color vision and not our rods that enable us to um, see light and dark, but another light sensor. And despite all the um, the, the terrible reception from the scientific community who's saying, you know, the eye is the best understood organ in the human body. There can't possibly be another sensor. Anyway, he he did the science and he proved beyond doubt that there is indeed another sensor. So we have a sensor that um, basically another light sensor that sees light and keys our master clock in our brain, tells it when it's night and when it's day. And that keeps all our cells ticking their body clock because there's a body clock in every single cell in our body. And it keeps it ticking like an orchestra, ticking to the same rhythm. So we function as an individual. Um, So the spider, I use the spiders to tell this story. And it's a great chapter. I had such fun with that chapter because people have done all sorts of mad things in the name of science to understand this sense. You know, they've they have um, climbed down to the depths of the of of the earth and, and stayed in kind of deep, dark caves for up to six months. Um, to show that we that we rely on sunlight to kind of keep our body clocks in rhythm and our sense of time. Yeah, and then there's you know David Eagleman who launches people off uh, high, you know, high podiums to see how well they, you know, how it is that 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 their their sense of time gets distorted when they're highly afraid. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so this this chapter in my book was about circadian time. It enables us to kind of clock the time of day which is super important. You know, some of us are larks, some of us are owls. I mean, I could have written a book just on that chapter. But then the Eagleman side of perception of time is also fascinating, really fascinating. Um, There were a couple of chapters in the book that um, didn't make it actually, but maybe they might, you know, they might appear somehow. But time is definitely a gripping subject. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure you have lots of material now that we can look forward to reading in in other outlets as well. Um, so I, I want to remind our listeners that Jackie Higgins's book, Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses, is now available at booksellers everywhere. But I want to ask one more question about the sort of very essence of sentience and 
you know, what after, you know, doing all of this research, speaking to all of these scientists, rereading all of the wonderful Oliver Sacks um, books that you must have in order to write this book, there's still this question of the difference between just sensing the world and then your awareness that you are sensing the world. And that to me seems pretty human that, you know, we have this subjective awareness, this meta awareness of our own awareness of our own interactions with the environment. And I I don't, you know, whether or not another animal has that, I mean, I think that sometimes we look at the eyes of another animal, whether it's a chimpanzee, or even in your case, you talk about that peacock shrimp um, (laughs) that, you know, puts his eye back on you or, you know, or some other cephalopod uh, who just seems like there's knowledge that there is this sense of that they are aware that they are sensing in the moment. I wonder what your thoughts are about that, whether that is something that we share with other animals. What have you learned about this very, you know, this gnarly, this gnarly, where where biology brushes up against philosophy. I mean, it's just exactly we haven't got the answer yet. I mean, there's this wonderful, I'm going to come back to the very first page of the book and this brilliant, there's a book I have loved and read called by Henry Marsh called Do No Harm. He performs these awake craniotomies on his patients. So he's probing their brain as they are talking. The idea being that he's not going to uh, destroy useful tissue because they'll start to slur their speech or their vision, whatever it is, will go awry. But he has this line that just can't, doesn't leave me. And he says, every time I push the sucker through someone's brain, the gelatinous brain, I can't get over the idea that I'm pushing it through thoughts, feelings, emotions. And while science wrangles with this, and I'm sure we'll get the answer, but while we're still wrangling with this this kind of thorny issue of turning material to immaterial, this gray area. I mean, sentience is, is this, it basically kind of um, maps this gray area. You've got the sensory, you can look at the senses and kind of make assumptions about what someone is seeing. But then you've got the feelings and experiences. You know, what is pain to an animal? What is pleasure to an animal? As a biologist, I think pain must dissuade you from doing something. It's our guardian angel. Pleasure must encourage you towards doing something. But what they're actually feeling, I don't know what you're feeling, let alone a spookfish kind of, you know, down in, a, in the depths of the ocean. So, so back to Henry Marsh, while this kind of impossible magician's act, except it's not, it's reality, and there will be a scientific explanation for it. It's not a miracle. feels miraculous because we haven't got the explanation. But while we're missing the explanation between material and immaterial, it's so difficult to know what consciousness is like for an octopus. The octopus is apparently now is now on the list of creatures with consciousness. So we're in this kind of philosophical gray zone, which is why I suppose I played devil's advocate with the book, because we have the concrete physiology and the senses. And knowing that, it, it then becomes a kind of imaginative leap into wondering what it's like, um, thanks to Thomas Nagel, what it's like to be the bad what it's like to be the octopus and what it's like to be you. 
I mean, certainly, uh, you know, it's it's just such a great uh, example, both of how many scientists study things that most of us really know nothing about when you when you go into the depth of these individual species and the kinds of senses that they have, but also just the just the diversity of how all of these different animals have adapted to their environments and have this inner mental world that that then they inhabit and how different that might be from ours but yet how sophisticated each one on its own is it, it's it's really in some ways it's an ode to the kind of neurodiversity in the animal species that is really wonderful yes and the neurodiversity in us i mean it's the oliver sacks stories um the neurodiversity the woman you can see millions more colors than the rest of us the woman who feels pain much more acutely than the rest of us, or the the young lad who didn't feel pain at all. And you would think that you would want to be him because it didn't guard him. He died. The chap in my book, he died. So it is, it's a book about neurodiversity. It's true. Yeah, I like that. And the only time I will say that I... I sort of had a, a moment of disagreement, and it was more with Seth than with you, was this notion that if you don't have hearing, that, you know, that the universality of it, because of course, people who are deaf have a very rich inner life experience, and they see things like, for example, the 3D spatial space of gesture that they literally use their language areas to understand if they are native signers, that those of us who are hearing just Never do. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm with you. I, I I hope I didn't give the wrong impression. I'm absolutely with you. Or if you look at the character um, Eshref Armagan, who's blind, the artist who's blind, who says he sees the world through his fingertips and scientists looked at his brain and he's using the visual part of his brain uh, for, for touch. So he is essentially seeing through his fingers. Exactly that. And And the wonder of our neuroplastic brain that enables... Um, when something is lost, or like Ian, when something is lost, the new horizons that are possible are exciting. Jackie Higgins, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. I loved our conversation. Thank you for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, please support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds where we upload ad-free versions every week. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, where we upload ad-free versions of every episode. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LeMaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode is edited by Daniel Link. Additional production help comes from Adam Isaac. And I'm your host, Andre Viscontis. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.